thing I tell people leaders who are afraid to broach a topic, if they suspect someone's struggling, is you might be the only person who says something. So please know that. Please know that you have the ability to potentially save a life. And the one thing you shouldn't be taking on is saying to yourself, I can't fix it. I'm not a therapist. You don't have to fix it. The key here is to say, I know you to be this personality, bubbly, happy, engaged, and energetic. I see you that way. But the person that I've been interacting with the past week isn't that. Are you okay? And then just shut up. Are you okay? And just create that opening, that access, and just listen. The power of listening is so profound. Welcome to today's episode of Unleash Thyself. I am your host, Constantine Moron, and with me today I have Michelle E. Dickinson. Michelle is a passionate mental health advocate, TED speaker, resilience mentor, and a published author. Prepare yourself for an unforgettable conversation that's sure to leave a lasting impression. Well, hello, Michelle. Thank you for joining me today on another episode of Unleash Thyself podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. And our audience has heard your beautiful story, your introduction. So why not tell us about your healing journey to self-discovery. That's such an inspiring story when I first heard about it. So I would love for you to share more with me and the audience as well. Well, first of all, thank you so much for finding me and for having me on and for talking about this because it's not one of the most comfortable conversations when we talk about our emotional, mental well-being. So thank you for leading in this in this space. Oh my goodness. So where do I start? So like you, I spent many years in a corporate role and I I never really spoke about my challenging childhood because it was something that I just was proud that I had overcome and became a contributing member of society. You know, I grew up with a mom who had bipolar disorder, so that meant rapid cycling of manic highs and lows. And so that like affected me in my entire childhood. It shaped me. When, when one member of a family has a mental illness, the entire family unit suffers. But I didn't know any different. I just was like, okay, this is my life and, and I will navigate. Children are very resourceful. Yes. But there was, a, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of physical, mental, emotional abuse. And so, like I said, I was just happy I emerged from it uh, and was able to get a good job and work a good, in, in a good you know, industry. That story was left dormant within me. And until I, I found myself telling a colleague about my mom and she nominated me to give a TED talk on our, on our closed oh. TED stage. So uh, I, for the first time in many, many years, found myself telling the story to all my peers about what it was like to love someone with a mental illness. And, and that changed everything for me. Like that literally changed the trajectory of my life. Before that, I thought I was going to retire in the sunset after a nice long career in a corporate job and that's it. But I got really connected to the power of storytelling and how many people felt connected to me because I, I told my story. And so that led me to write my memoir and that led me to become an advocate. And that led me ultimately to leave the industry and start my own company. What a great story, Michelle. And how, like when you went on the stage for the first time to share a story that was so difficult to share, what did you feel in the moment and right after it? It must have been, of course, a tough 
experience, but also empowering at the same time. Always struggled with insecurity and not feeling like I was good enough. You know, when you have a mom who struggles emotionally, she's absent from you. So not there to reassure you. So confidence was a big issue for me. So stepping on the stage was terrifying, but also liberating. I was like, wow, I actually have something to say and people are listening to me. So for me in the moment was incredibly powerful, of course, terrifying because, you know, you have to speak like without a script for 10 minutes and you have to capture the audience and you have to, you have to be very well versed in your talk. So it was, it was a huge growth opportunity challenge, but I was really proud that I was able to do it. It's beautiful. I love the story. And did you find yourself wanting to do more of that as soon as you ended or as soon as you were completing the first conversation on the topic? Or did it take a bit of time for you to kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know what, this is a story I can share with even more people. I can build on it and I can have such a big impact on others' life. That's exactly what you just said, right? So people started to come out of the shadows and want to talk about what I shared because it was relatable, whether they struggled themselves or they had someone that they loved struggle. So that relatedness was like really powerful for me because that was a 10 minute talk. So I said, wow, if I could do this in a 10 minute talk, what could I do if I wrote a memoir? How many lives could I touch if I wrote my story, if I actually published a book and put it out there? And so so that's what inspired me to go on and, and say, no, I need to, I need to expand on this story and have people know the full breadth of this experience. Well, that's amazing. And when it comes to, of course, your healing journey through self-discovery, I would imagine at least looking at myself and how I'm going through my self-discovery, it feels like a never ending story. You always discover new things and you, you dig deeper and you find more and more. Have you felt the same way? Because of course you've been on your journey of self-discovery and healing through that for a lot longer than I have been. So I'm curious to see your take on, you know, are you still finding new things today? Are you still working on things to improve in, within yourself? Oh my goodness, yes. It's a never-ending onion with layer upon layer upon layer. So yeah, as much as like I put myself through a lot of self-discovery work, I was in clinical therapy when I was diagnosed with depression because I had I had two failed marriages. There was a lot to unpack as to mm-hmm. why. <laughs> so I did a lot of healing there. I did Tony Robbins work. I did landmark work. I was thirsty to understand how the impact of my childhood was unfolding and what I could do to shift the trajectory of where I was going so I wasn't repeating the same patterns. So yeah, for me, and even to this day, like I, I actually have to like, take a take a pause sometimes and look at how far I've come. But then I also am realizing every single day, in every meditation, and in every opportunity I have to support a client, there's still things unfolding in front of me that I'm still looking at and discovering for myself, which is incredible, you know. And so I, I say. The journey is never over. The journey, you know, is is little by little every day. And when we think we've arrived, we really haven't. So we have to keep looking because there's always something else. So I'm still on the journey. I'm happy to hear you say that because that's been my experience as well. And it's one of those things when I dive into, let's say, learning about something new. It could be about myself. It could be about, you know, I say running this podcast. You go into it thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be fairly easy. There's so much information out there. I'm going to be done in a day or two. 
I'm learning everything. And then you realize the more you learn, the less you know. And then the more you have to dig in, the more you have to, to understand. So how did this journey of yours culminate into you becoming a resilience coach and a resilience speaker? How do the two of them tie together? For a long time, I was beating the drum of wanting there to be more compassion and understanding around mental illness, because that was something witnessing firsthand with my mom and then experiencing it. I thought to myself, the world needs to not suffer in silence. We need to do a better job of normalizing this conversation. But throughout the past few years with the pandemic, what I realized, in my, even in my own struggle to stay out of depression, because I still constantly have to be aware that I'm vulnerable for depression, especially as an entrepreneur with the highs and lows of the, the business, I learned that resilience was really a lifestyle I had to adopt. I had to be doing things for myself every day to stay on top of my game and feel good and be able to continue on. And that's where I said to myself, we need to get ahead of mental illness. We need to get ahead of the depression and anxiety. We need to remind people there are things they could be doing so they don't have to sit and wait until they hit that horrible point of burnout. And then they have to claw themselves back to, to normalcy. So when the pandemic hit, my early clients, when I first start my started my business, my early clients were asking me for resilience work because they were worried about their staff who are now suddenly working remotely and they were isolated and they were concerned about their well-being. So I built my first resilience workshop right before the pandemic, like right going into the pandemic. And from there, I was just delivering the, the resilience work throughout the pandemic to help people sort of stay on track and not struggle. And then as it unfolded, I had um, I had a, a school that I wanted to work with, a school that I had delivered a children's program in years earlier. And so I reached out to them and I said, let me, let me deliver the workshop to your teachers. And quickly we learned that teachers are extremely private and a workshop doesn't work for them. And they'd rather have an individual conversation so I said, you know, I really just want to meet these these teachers where they are. I want to help them. They're struggling. So that's when the coaching was born. I didn't set out to be a coach. I set out to teach people how to help themselves. Any way that unfolded, I was open to. And so that's how I've become a resilience coach. I didn't go to certification after certification after certification to become a life coach. I am a passionate resilience coach who wants people to know that they can live a resilient lifestyle. And if I need to reach you through a workshop, I will. If I need to reach you through one-on-one -on -one coaching, I will. That's, that's amazing. When I was reading more about you, you and your, your beautiful work and your website, I noticed some quotes that I wasn't necessarily familiar with. The fact that you know more than two in three people will experience burnout or have burnout symptoms from working from home as, yeah. you know, as part of the pandemic response. And, you know, that's staggering, but not surprising because yeah. it's a lonely world when you have to be in the house all the time yes. and, you know, you no longer have those connections with the people at work, right? The in-person physical community aspect of it. And how how do you find that the resilience work you're doing helps with that type of burnout when someone is stuck behind the computer for so long with little face-to-face -face interaction with others? So it is a conversation of loneliness that you're touching on, but it's more a conversation of boundaries and a full life. 
when we went to working remote, a lot of people were working around the clock. They no longer had a commute. So they were starting their day earlier, ending their day later, having dinner and coming back to work. So they, they lost their boundaries. Like we used to have the bookends of the day where you drive to work and then like you drive home and mm-hmm. then like you, you'd leave the work there and then you'd start your personal life. People had lost the boundaries. So they were, their lives were blending together and it was becoming more about work and less about their, their personal life. So when I'm talking to people who are isolated working from home, there's a conversation around connection that's important. And when I say connection, it first starts with connection with yourself. People don't realize that when they think they're lonely, a lot of it starts with the fact that you're not even connecting to yourself. And when I say connecting to yourself, I mean meditation. I mean, really tapping into your inner, your inner voice. And then it's having the boundaries and making sure that you're engaging in the things that you love. What brings us deep fulfillment in life is having the, the things that you have to do, but then the things that you love to do that you draw energy from. Personally, I'm a potter. I can sit behind the pottery wheel for hours and my back will be killing me, but I will be lit with energy because I'm doing something I love and it lights me up. And I think people have forgotten the value of having those other things and making the time to do them because that's what's going to give us a little bit more balance. Exactly. I I like what you said there because looking back at the things I like to do, my friends, my family, my partner and others, it it is true. The the more you do things that you enjoy doing, the more balance you can bring into your life. And then you can get more energy to do those less desirable actions, right? Maybe your chores, maybe, you know, going to work, whatever it might be. And so building on this resilience aspect of it, how does it actually help us prevent the mental health and avoid burnout? You mentioned setting boundaries is one way to do so. And I like that because I'm looking at my own corporate life and I struggle with setting boundaries, right? I'll answer messages at night, I'll answer messages in the morning. I don't necessarily have a virtual commute, either going or leaving work. So it definitely blends in with my personal life quite a bit. And there is quite a a lot of impact as a result of it. Yeah. When I say a resilience lifestyle, it's what are you doing every day to fill your bucket? A lot of folks, when when I start talking to them, they're not doing something for themselves every day. They're saying, okay, on Saturday, I'm gonna go and do that thing. Or in a month, I'm going to take that week-long vacation and I'm going to undo, you know, six months of compounded stress that I've I've been building up. And, and that vacation is going to be it. Or for women, we're known for this. I'm going to go take a spa day. Listen, one day or one vacation cannot unravel all of the compounded stress that you're dealing with. Stress is inevitable. It's coming at us every day. So we have to do our part every day to nourish ourselves. We can't step over it and, and think that we're like little robots and we're machines and we can just keep going. So when I say preserve mental health and emotional well-being, it is a daily practice. It is It starts with how do you start your day? It, it goes on to do you move your body? Are you getting movement in? It goes to hydration. It does... It even, you know, means what does sleep look like? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you coming at the day half full because you haven't slept? And then how do you expect yourself to be able to deal with the stress of the day? So it's all the little things that add up. And so what I like to do is sit down with people and say, hey, let's just do an audit of what you do. Let's highlight what you, what the good is that you're doing in your routine and see what kinds of small shifts you can make to to feel better. 
to improve. That's a really good way to look at it because looking at my life again, because I, I know myself, every time I, I have a better routine in the morning, in during the work hours and beyond, it makes my days that much more fulfilling and easier to, to go through. And then at the end of the week, you're not like, oh, and now it's time to catch up on sleep or now it's time to catch up on me time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, for example, for, for my life, I started incorporating walking my dogs either during meetings when I don't have to speak so I can just right. listen or during lunchtime. And just that exercise of half an hour going out, even though it's cold here in Canada, it energizes me for the rest of the day. Because in the past I would do, let's say I would have a, a, a heavier lunch and not walk and not do an exercise. And then I would feel lethargic for the rest of the day. And right. that impacts both my work and, of course, my personal life beyond because five, six o'clock comes around and you're like, well, I don't want to do anything. I'm going to go on the couch right. and watch TV. So I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. And when you're thinking about the clients who work with big corporate organizations or individuals, what are some of the most common challenges you see people face? You would be surprised, Constantine, how many people have nothing outside of work and family responsibilities. How many people don't have a hobby? How many people don't have a passion? Or if they do, they've forgotten about how passionate they were. Because if you think about it, we have these lovely devices that are notorious for sucking time. Yes. So when you sit down to relax because you're tired, this is what you're doing. You're not thinking about, oh, I think I'm going to go paint or I think I'm going to go, uh, I think I'm going to go read that book that I really want to read or I think I'm going to go take that class because this thing takes up a lot of the, the downtime that we have. So it, it's about being intentional. If you know you love to play the tuba, make the time to go play the tuba and don't think, oh, well, I'm not going to be in an orchestra because it doesn't matter if you're in an orchestra. You're playing it for the sake of playing it. You're, you're doing something you know you love that's going to light you up. It's contributing to your ability to show up the best version of your life at home, at work. How we show up to the people we love and the people we work with is so important. So what are you doing to fill your cup in terms of doing stuff that you love, not only the stuff you have to do, like the chores, like work. So when I literally sit down with people, the first piece of homework most of them have to do is like start looking around for the thing that they're going to do. Like, what is the thing that you want to engage in? What is the thing you want to start researching? What, what lights you up? Well, I don't know. We'll start getting curious about that because that's where we get to create a little bit more balance. So your life isn't just like being on a hamster wheel. So there's that. And then the other thing is a lot of people fall into their day. I, I don't know how other, how other another way of saying it is. They're falling into their day. They wake up, they hit snooze, they hit snooze, mm -hmm. they hit snooze. And then they rock it out of their bed. They rush through their routine, high cortisol levels, high stress immediately, get in their car, go to work. And then stress is waiting for them. So they're not taking any time for themselves. They're not taking a pause for themselves. They're not even having a cup of coffee and reading a book and just being being quiet, being peaceful for that few moments before they start their day. So, you know, one of the things I, I say, like, could you introduce a morning routine? And does it have to be, it doesn't have to be an hour. It could be 15 minutes, but something for you to just clear your head and take a deep breath and set an intention for the day, maybe say a prayer or do a meditation or practice gratitude, whatever that looks like for you. But don't fall into your day because that doesn't set you up to have a good day. So let's try to set you up to have a good day 
we all deserve yes. that. Exactly. I really resonate with both of those parts that you mentioned, right? Because especially during the pandemic, working from home, working for a large corporation where you're responsible to bring the best version of yourself day in and day out. Yep. You forgo a lot of those morning, afternoon, and evening routines because yeah. I'll wake up and I'll jump right into my email, right into the meetings oh. because, you know, work ethic. And <laughs> maybe that's what I was trying to, you know, fool myself into believing at the time. And then I realized that as you add small things in the day, like you mentioned, you start having compounding effects over time. Again, to the same point you brought up, which is amazing to see down the road because in the moment you won't realize it's like, oh, why am I spending 10 minutes meditating or just mm -hmm. relaxing and enjoying a cup of coffee or a, a light breakfast or whatever the case might be, or even a walk, right? I might walk yeah. my dogs before work. Yeah. And then you realize at the end of the week, all of a sudden my mind is more clear. I have more energy. Yeah. I, I'm, more, I'm more in touch with myself, but I can also talk to people longer. I can be social because I'm not burnt out. Yeah. You know, day in, day, in, day out, week in, week out. For, for your listeners, so here's a little thing that they can do. Ask yourself on a scale from one to five what your energy level is. I say if it's below a three, you need to make a change. Then ask yourself on a scale from one to five, What's your stress level? I say, if it's above a three, then you need to make a change. So those are the two barometers that I always use with my clients. What's your energy? What's your stress? And if those two are in the wrong direction, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So you, have to, you have to take a step back and say, I got to get my stress levels down. I, I want to get my energy level up. I want to have good energy for the things I love, like my, my loved ones when I come home from work. So what could you do to be correcting those two things? We have the ability to, to shift that. With knowledge it comes great power. So I always use those two as examples of, you know, you got you to gotta then take a step back and say, what can I do differently? In this approach that you mentioned, half the battle is just being aware of what's going on because I feel at times we are not even aware of the self-destructive habits we get ourselves into right. and then we don't realize that the stress level is at a, you know, at, at the height of a four or a five. Right. And then by the time we realize we're burnt out or yeah. you know, something else has gone uh, wrong in our life. It's so true. And, and you cannot run at a stress level of a five for a long period of time without your body starting to break down. You know, stress manifests itself in the body physically through dis-ease or disease. Mm -hmm. So you, you, it, it, the fight or flight, you're not, your body's not intended to be constantly in, in that mode. You have to think about what is it I can do to mitigate some of this stress. Exercise is one of them. Meditation is another. So yeah, you have to make some changes. And I really like how you position some of these potential solutions because you're not prescribing that, hey, you got to do this in order to be happy because there's no one shoe fits all or one size fits all. Everyone has to attempt to try to see what fits within their life. A single mother of a few children may not have a full hour for a morning routine, but right. may have five or 10 minutes that she can right. dedicate to doing something specific. Right. Same with, let's say, someone like a man that, for example, is looking after children as well, a single father. Yeah. Same type of situation, right? You may not have that that time for yourself yet, but making an intention to start small and then build up on it, right? It's like small habits that will eventually lead to something that's sustainable and can be repeatable. 
Have you seen challenges with your customers, both in the corporate world or otherwise, where they start on a good routine, they understand the value of it, but then they kind of fall back into old habits? Of course. So that's where I I love working with people because I also serve them as an accountability coach (laughs) because it takes time. You know, you're going to have good weeks. You're going to have bad weeks. My goal is to get you to experience a good week. So you want to return to the good week because that felt good. Oh my goodness. I got some meditation in. I got some exercise in. I was hydrated. I got some good sleep. I felt amazing. Well, let's get you back to that. It's possible. So it, but it does take discipline. It does take consistency. And over a period of time, before you know it, 30 days, we have new habits if we can just keep going. Yes, absolutely. And I know that the human mind is very good at remembering the best stuff over the good stuff for obvious reasons to keep us protected and to keep us alive. So would you say that with your clients and what you do in your own life, maybe keeping a journal or keeping, keeping track of those good days or weeks can benefit you to look back and say, you know what, if I'm having a terrible week, let's kind of go back and see, you know, the, the times when I did all these things, I felt yes. like $100. Yes. I love that. Journaling, I think, is is a wonderful tool. And and it's not for everyone. So you got to mm-hmm. find what works for you. I, I do believe journaling itself is is definitely a great outlet for people to capture their thoughts, their practices, whatever works for them. I say, whatever you do, set yourself up so that it's so easy that you can't not do it. Yes. You know, like if you have a practice that's like, well, I need 20 minutes and I got to get my book and I got to find a pen and I got to sit down and I'm not going to have enough time. So you abandon it. Create practices and strategies that are so easy that you're like, well, how could I not take that five minutes and do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Make it intentional because we're talking about mental health. We're talking about the individual. However, the individual is part of a larger community, right? Part of work. And I know you've done amazing work with eradicating mental health stigma within the work environment. So I'd love to understand a bit more about, A, the challenges you faced in having to tackle such a big and delicate subject. And then some of the things that organizations and leaders that will listen to this podcast can take back to the organization and say, you know what, maybe we can start looking at some of these challenges as well and see how we can fix them. So first of all, I think the one amazing thing that COVID has done is really gotten organizations to look at this because they realize just looking at the data, like one in three are struggling with anxiety or depression. So that's one in every third person you're interacting with at work. So just the prevalence alone is really inspired, I think, more Uh, company leaders to say, what else can we do to support our people? And there are great things companies already do, like benefits, employee assistance hotlines, programs to raise awareness. I love love the opportunity to work with organizations that already get it, because then I don't have to convince them. They get it. They see it's important. But there's also challenges that come from COVID that I think leaders are forgetting. We did not train our people leaders to lead in a post-pandemic world where they have one in three struggling with some type of imbalance. They don't, they, they just were not equipped. And so for us to expect people leaders of our organization to know how to care for their people in a way that they were never trained is not fair. So I like to work with organizations. I have a people leader program where I'm explaining to people leaders, how do you safely engage if you suspect someone's struggling? 
How can you support them? What is it that you can do to influence your culture? What is it that you can do to influence your team? What is your relationship to mental health? You know, your relationship to mental health is very different than mine. And just like any other unconscious bias, that's how we're going to lead. So the self-awareness is so critical for leaders who have responsibility for people. So I think, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing in the workplace are organizations saying, yeah, we need more. We need to equip our, our people leaders to lead their people more effectively. But then, Michelle, teach us how can we build individual and personal resilience? How can we make this resilience a lifestyle? So we're nourishing ourselves every day and we get to be the best version of ourselves at work, but then also for our family. Yes, I can definitely see that. And when you're talking about leaders, I'm thinking back at a couple of things that I'm into in my career. I've also led various groups of people in, in management roles. And one of the things I realized is that when I, I'm, I'm a consultant by day trade, and I've been doing consulting for a long time as well. And when I I'm in person delivering a workshop. When I'm in person doing meetings, be it with one person or a hundred, you can read body language. You can tell if something is off just by seeing someone's, how they move, how they sit. But when you're moving off to working from home and working behind the screen like we are right now, mm -hmm. we can see part of the body, but we don't necessarily see the full body language. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering in your experience, have you seen that part of the reason why leaders are not equipped with the right tools right now is also because some of the skills that they're relying on, like reading body language, yeah. have gone out the window because it's no longer, or even emotional vibrations that may happen in the room, right? Because you can yeah. feel something is up sometimes when you chat with someone like, oh, what's going on? And then you can probe mm -hmm. some more. And, and on a second part of that would be, how much do you think is the leaders being afraid to ask tough questions and if believing that this is too personal for me to, let's say, Michelle, I'm talking to you one-on-one -on -one and I'll be like, I know something is off, but I feel bad asking, you know, because I don't want to yeah. open a can of worms or yeah. build a distance between us. Yeah. Well, one of the things I always say is we have to cultivate trust every day. So the rapport is, is strong. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't just be like, you know, you, you can't just be a hands-off people leader and then expect to be all invasive with your people and they're going to be open to it. <laughs> if you That's have a trusting relationship where it's, where, where you're a little bit vulnerable, you're creating that trust every day, you're cultivating trust every day, then when something comes up in someone's life, they're not going to be so hesitant to, to talk to you about it. So there's that. There's also the culture. What's the culture and the overall vibe in the company? You know, like that's a bigger beast to tackle. Yeah. But individually, you can, as a leader, build more rapport, more trust. And the thing I tell people leaders who are afraid to broach a topic if they suspect someone's struggling is you might be the only person who says something. So please know that. Please know that you have the ability to potentially save a life. And the one thing you shouldn't be taking on is saying to yourself, I can't fix it. I'm not a therapist. You don't have to fix it. The key here is to say, I know you to be this personality, bubbly, happy, engaged, energetic. I see you that way. But the person that I've been interacting with the past week, isn't that, are you okay? And then just shut up. Are you okay? And just create that opening, that access and just listen. The power of listening is so profound. And then know what your resources are. 
if they're struggling, they're having marital problems, they're having health issues, whatever it is, like, are you aware of what, what we have available? Can I get you the resources the company has? I want to make sure you have everything you need. And then, you know, what do you need from me? And then just be quiet and then just support. We don't have to feel like we have to come in and be like, so have you thought of this? Did you do this? Like, no, that's where we get in trouble, right? Like, well, I had a cousin who had depression and they took this product. Like, no, no, that's not what you do. Just listen and create a safe space for them and know that you truly could be the only person that is caring enough to, to ask and engage them. That's a really good way to look at it. And wh what would you say to someone like a leader that would come to you and say, you know what, I've opened up to someone like this and they still had their walls up and they didn't want to share. Do you recommend that they push forward then with every chance, try to probe? Or do is there a point at which they have to back off and allow some space and maybe a bit of time for that person to process the fact that there may be someone trying to help them? Yeah on this journey? It's about planting seeds. You know, I think the more people know that they have someone that cares about them, they, they will reach out when they're ready. I think the worst thing you could ever do is try to pry and be invasive and, and you need to meet people where they are. I mean, that's what I say all day long. Like you have to meet people where they are and you don't, the biggest mistake too, that b believe it or not still happens in the, in the workplace, in the corporate world is people manage for performance when they know it's an emotional challenge that they're dealing with. So don't go managing for performance in that situation. You will further exacerbate the poor person's situation. You just want to make sure that you're acknowledging, I, I just don't see the person that I know you to be. Are you okay? Okay. So a thought came to my mind listening to us talking about what leaders could do to make their life easier and better for those that they, they manage and they lead. But how about on the flip side, if let's say I have a leader that may not be there yet, they may not be as open or curious, can I do, as an employee, can I do something to open up to a leader and say, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. I know that's even tougher than someone asking me that. But I wonder, is there something that people can do to bring more awareness of this, similar to what you've done in your workspace mm -hmm. to eradicate the health, mental health stigma? And I know that's a very scary thought, right? Because yeah. I'm thinking of my work life. Can I go to my manager and say, you know what, I'm struggling with this? And I, yeah. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are and how you've helped your cu customers or clients yeah. in normal coaching to, to work through that. So there's a couple of things. If you're an employee that's struggling and you just don't feel you, like you have a rapport with your leader or that they're open or that they would be, that it would be a safe space to, to disclose that to them, then don't. Go and find and talk to an HR professional and disclose it to them. So that, that would be the first thing for the individual that's struggling, yes. right? Like, cause, cause we all have those leaders who just are not emotionally aware. They're not self-aware. They're not even clear about their own mental health. So you just don't feel comfortable talking to them. So talk to an HR professional in your organization is, would be the first thing. If you wanted to, from a grassroots perspective, create change in your organization, consider a mental health employee resource group. That's what we did when we were at one of the biggest Fortune 500 companies. We said, hey, how do you change and eradicate stigma, create more community around this topic so people feel less isolated? How do you do it? Well, let's create an employee resource group 
informally or formally. So we created it informally and then we went to HR and said, hey, can you help us formalize it? And they did. Just like any other affinity group, you know, Hispanic ERG, African-American ERG, women ERG, like whenever. If you have a few people that you know who would be willing to champion a community that could bring people together to share resources and support one another, well, what a beautiful community you could create for your company. Absolutely. That's such a great idea because then you're essentially, you're not looking at others to change. You're just changing yourself in your own environment and you're bringing change to others. And you're at that point, you're inspiring and empower others to, you know what, maybe I can do something to, with the struggles I'm facing. It might not be mental health. It might be something else. And all of a sudden people are building these communities, these groups that can help each other out. And I like what you said because it looks like it starts with you, right? It's no one is going to do the work for you. Yeah. You may need help, you know, in the form of a mentor like yourself or maybe a leader that acts as a mentor. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you can get all the <laughs> knowledge, all the information you could possibly have. And if you don't put in any of the work, it doesn't matter. So peer communities are so helpful because peer communities bring people together who have struggled with the similar thing including those who have come out of it on the other side, they mm-hmm. represent hope for the person who might be going through it. So you you consider a, someone who had a bout of depression, who's like, yeah, I want to be part of this community. Well, you have someone who's in it, who sees that that person in their own company navigated it, came out the other side. Like, I would be inspired by that. Well, how'd you do it? What resources did you tap into? I want to know, how did you do it? Right, you're bringing these people together, and they're supporting one another. That is a beautiful thing. Absolutely, yes, I love that. I love that, and I believe that we need more of it in the workplace. Right, yeah. looking back at the various jobs I've held, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 20 companies, you definitely could use more of that, and it opens up. It allows you then to feel less lonely as well. Back to our point with COVID, then it created that feeling of loneliness and setting boundaries because now this becomes something possibly even fun you do, right? Because you feel like you're making an impact, not just in your life, but in the life of others. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And people fundamentally just want to feel connected and they want to feel gotten and they want to feel understood. So if you have a space like this for people in the workplace that they feel like they can connect with, I mean, you're, you're actually, you're doing your whole workforce a good thing. And the more people share, the more others will feel empowered that they can share as well. So it kind of goes back to your story. When you started with a TED Talk, you did it for 10 minutes. I bet a lot of people felt like, you know what? If Michelle did it yeah, and I felt inspired by her story, maybe it's time for me to share my story right. or stories. Yeah. And we learn through those stories. We see we see little little shreds of ourselves in other people's stories. So storytelling when we can relate with those people, right? Like it's a coworker, it's a friend, acquaintance, someone that, you know, it's not like a, a pop star or a politician that's so far detached from what I am that maybe I can't relate, but it's someone I, I can see and, you know, has gone through similar struggles as me in life. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things I, I recommend my clients do is get the senior leader, the senior leader who's courageous enough to say, I once was crippled by anxiety. Let me, let me go first. Let me tell you, like, you want to create a culture change. You get a senior leader to sort of tell one on themselves and make it more real and more human. At least you'll get other people talking about the fact that they came clean and came out and told that story. 
But more importantly, you're creating a ripple effect of other people feeling less ashamed that they struggle as well. Exactly. And you're, you're leading by example there, right? You're, you're showing that no one has to be perfect to get higher up on the ladder if that's your goal, right? Like people don't need to feel like they need to have their life in order in order to be happy, in order to get themselves to the next level, to unleash the, the better version of themselves. Yeah. And when it comes to the work you've done to eradicate mental health stigma in the workplace, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced in, in doing so? Because I would imagine it wasn't always just, you know, go up, up, up. No, no. I mean, it's hard. It's like, you know, I've met organizations that, that have all these great intentions written on paper and you promoted on boards throughout the organization, but then what are they actually doing? What, what are the actual steps they're taking beyond the, you know, visual, I guess, preaching? Right. So I think I think when organizations truly are walking the walk, putting putting dollars behind their efforts to really create compassionate environments, raise awareness, create a sense of community, um, make sure there are no boundaries with people accessing care. I think one of the biggest challenges, too, we have is like you can promote mental health all day long and you can say, here's the 800 number. But then if an employee goes and tries to access care and they can't for two months, you got a fundamental problem that you have to really step back and say, wow, like our, our people are finally getting the courage to access care and they can't get it for several months. Like that's a problem. We got to fix that. So I think it's all the little things that make a difference. So really walking the walk and leading, leading the way and clearing the path for people is so important. Yes. Yes. I can definitely see that. So that's a tough subject, right? Because it's still, I believe, to this day, a tough one for people to open up about, of yeah. course, because you become vulnerable in the situation, right? You become, it may appear that you're weak. It may appear that all of a sudden now you have problems that people didn't know about. Yeah. And by having an organization that empowers you to, or at least allows you to have open conversations and not reprimand you for it, I think that's a huge step. Because I believe a lot of people, and you know, talking to some of my coworkers in previous workspaces as well, it's tough to come out with certain things because you're afraid that you know, you're going to lose your job, and yeah. or you know you're going to be looked at as the crazy person in the room, or otherwise, right? And yeah. what would you say to someone that comes to you with those fears, right? Oh, I don't want to open up to my manager despite them asking me how I feel because I'm afraid I'm going to be seen in a different light. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can speak to that firsthand because I experienced it. I think that's also a reason why I am so passionate about this. When I was diagnosed with depression, I was leading the mental health employee resource group with a a team of leaders in my Fortune 500 company. And I remember saying to myself, well, this is where I have to lead by example for the people that are looking up to us. So I disclosed to my boss and it was not, it was not very, wasn't a very compassionate experience. That's, that's the word. It was not a very compassionate experience when I disclosed that. And then six months later in my performance review, when I was being evaluated, I was told that I didn't bring my bubbly and upbeat self to work every day. Ouch. I know. Right. So in the moment though, Constantine, I was really upset. I was mad. I was shaking. I was pissed. I was like, how dare you evaluate me? I'm being bubbly. Right. Yeah, like how do you, how, what's the scale there? Oh, so awful. 
So in in my case, like I I was upset, but now looking back on it, I can vividly see as crappy as that was, that was a 100% reflection on her relationship to mental health. She had no emotional awareness, no self-awareness, no no compassion, no empathy. In my opinion, to be able to say that to me in a performance review, I, I can now look back and say, you're the problem with leadership. That's not what you say to somebody. So if that happens to someone, take a step back and recognize it is so not about you. It is so a reflection of that leader and their inability to lead from a compassionate place. So, so just recognize that. And like I said before, check in and, and ask yourself, is this a safe person I feel comfortable disclosing to? Or do I need to go to my HR professional who, who I feel a little bit more comfortable with? Really, you have to choose where you feel comfortable disclosing and if you feel comfortable disclosing. Because I would imagine an experience like the one I just described is not only emotionally draining, but it can really impact your ability to come out clean next time to someone else because you felt judged, you felt... Totally. Right? It's like, totally. So, yeah, I mean, at that point, I wonder, have you, you know, I'm assuming you thought about, okay, this is not a place for me to work at anymore because... Yeah of the environment, right? Because usually they say people don't quit the job, they quit their manager or they quit their leader. Yeah. Sometimes we don't have that luxury because let's say we're in a recession like we are now or tech firms are laying off. So what can someone do in this scenario? So they see that review like you did, what what can you do? Do you take it up a step level with the new management team? Do you go to HR like you said? It's it's quite tough, right? It's a choice where you want to put your energy. And in that case, for me, I just said to myself, you know, I also believe though, I have a different belief system because of all the work I've done that life is truly happening for me and not to me in the moment. in in the moment, I felt quite the victim. Like, how dare this happen to me? I'm a, I'm a top performer. I consistently been a top performer. How is it that you cut me at the knees when I'm having a really hard time in my life, right? Going through divorce, like not easy stuff, but I also was able to pull myself together and recognize that life is truly happening for my highest good. And it's happening for me, not to me, even though in the moment was really, it was really crappy. I I knew I was not destined to stay there and, and, and the rest unfolded beautifully. And that experience shaped me into, and, and redirected me to the work I'm doing. Yeah. So seeing it the way you mentioned it is, I think it's critical. It's for you not to you because it's a lesson that you're learning yeah. on even even at the most basic level the way i see it now based on how you describe it it's like it's a lesson on how not to treat other people oh and even that's the only lesson that's already impactful enough oh i will never forget that i will never forget how horrible it felt to not be extended compassion and that touches on another subject that i know you love to talk about which is cultivating compassion in the workplace and beyond yeah. So maybe we can touch a bit on that and how how have you seen some of the you know the best leaders or individuals show compassion to others and of course we've seen an example of how not to do that but how can we as individuals or leaders show more compassion in the workplace but also in our you know day-to-day life you know we're people before we're an employee number 
And I will never forget, like I had this, my very first boss in the company that I had the bad boss, I'll never forget how he made me feel, how he made me feel. Like there's something very real about when someone extends their heart to you and they're genuinely interested in what you're interested in, mm. in terms of like what lights you up. Like, I'll never forget. He asked me, are you happy doing the work you're doing? I thought to myself, when in my entire career did a boss ask me if I was happy? They didn't, they, mm. they didn't really care. They just wanted you to produce the widget, whatever you were producing, right? right? But I felt genuinely cared for because I felt like he cared about me as a human being. So when I say compassion, it's cultivating trust. It's getting to know your people. It's understanding what motivates them. It under, is understanding what is a good day for them. What gets them excited about coming to work? What are the things that, that light them up? It's knowing them beyond the role they're performing, you know? And so, and when you have that, then you're, you're a trusted mentor. You're not just a boss, you know? So, I mean, cultivating trust begins with compassion. But the, here's the fundamental problem that I learn and I teach in my program all day long. You cannot, you are incapable of extending compassion to anyone else if you can't extend self-compassion to yourself. Mm. If you can't be loving and compassionate to yourself when you screw up, are you beating yourself up or are you giving yourself grace? It all starts with the leader that knows how to have compassion for themselves, then they can give it away. Oh, yes, that's so important. And I, I am looking at myself and I'm kind of disappointed in a way because it took me a long time to realize that, right? To lead by example, looking within and say, okay, am I, am I the person I want to be at? And of course, the answer is no, because we're always working on that. And compassion is a big part of it. If I'm not compassionate to myself, then I will push that out onto others as well. And you touched on something amazing earlier, the idea that you still remember that one manager that, you know, that that made you feel good, that made you feel heard. And I read a quote recently, essentially summarizing it is the idea that you remember people based on how they made you feel. So either good or bad or, you know, empowered or inspired or whatever the case might be. And there's such a beautiful example of that because those are the people you hold dear in your heart and you're like, you know what? I want to be more like that person Yeah. because they made me feel good. They made me feel heard. They made me feel, you fill in the blanks and then we can learn from them and we can do the same thing and bring that in our personal life and of course our work life. And mm-hmm. I also like the idea that at the end of the day, you're not my customer. You're not my coworker. You're a human being. You're just like me. Yeah. Of course you have your own challenges, your own things in your life. But at the end of the day, let's see that you were talking to another human. It doesn't matter if they're my customer, my coworker, or my employee. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's like, I'm I'm so present to this. It's like, and don't beat yourself up. Like, I hear, I hear you being very judgmental. Like, our journeys are always perfect. Even when we realize things we wish we would have learned earlier. Like, I say... I say to other people, like, you know, I started my entrepreneurial journey, you know, a couple of years ago. And I say, oh, I wish I would have had the courage to do this years ago. And they say to me, but no, Michelle, you would have never gathered all that information and learned what you learned to now be able to apply it. So it's like, it really is perfect. So it's like, 
don't waste your time disagreeing with it because where you are right now is where you are and that's progress. And that's a good thing, you know? So I even think about all the journey, the, the leadership journey that I've had and what I've learned about leading people and what I've learned about being led well and not being led well. And I'm at the point now in my, in my entrepreneurial journey where I'm about to, to scale my company and hire people. So I'm thinking about how do I want to lead? How do I want my people to be left feeling? I want them to have the most amazing experience working with me, right? So like all of this, would I wouldn't be feeling the way I feel if I didn't go through all of that. So it's just it just gets me really present to like, I think I'm actually going to be a really good leader because of all of the adversity that I've experienced. And I know what it feels like to not feel appreciated. Exactly, because you've seen both sides of the coin, right? Yeah. Because if you've only experienced the good or only the bad, yeah. it's very hard to then say, well, how should I lead? Right, right. And I, I just am really committed that, like, I, I just, people are people first. And, and it's a choice. Like, I think employers forget it is a choice. I don't care what the state of the economy is. It's a choice where people choose to work. It's a choice. You know, people can make money. You could go anywhere and make money. You could do anything. It's a choice where they choose to to decide that they're gonna they're gonna work. And we have to. I think it's sacred. It's something we have to treat differently. Yes, and people need to uh, need to believe that as well. Because I know a lot of people I know, and I've talked to friends, acquaintances, coworkers. Sometimes don't realize that it is a choice, like you said. They because of you know the the, the fear of having to grow through polishing your resume and applying mm -hmm. for jobs and interviews. And of course, recessions, you have to keep in mind or the status of the market. Mm -hmm. But I'm you're right, it is a choice because at the end of the day, this a job is something that takes up a significant amount of your time and energy. Yeah. And if it's not serving you, then why are you doing it? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's, it's interesting because I, I coach a lot of educators. And right now we have a, a crisis in education where so many educators want to leave the profession. <laughs> and I assert they don't want to leave the profession. They want relief because they are so stressed from getting it from every different angle. So I have the conversation with them. You know, it's, it's how they're being treated. It's their experience. But then it's also that they don't have balance. So and it's a choice where they where they will ultimately go once they're able to make a clear decision, right? But I think, I don't know, I think when people feel like they don't have a choice, they need to take a step back and ask themselves, are they caring for themselves so that they can see clearly? Yes. You, a lot of times you feel trapped because all you're focusing on is your job and you you don't have balance in your life. You don't have anything you're doing to nourish yourself. So feeling trapped is that my focus is solely on my job and there's so much more to our lives. Exactly. Yeah, it's like you're only looking outwards and you're not looking inwards to see yeah. what makes you happy and what choices you may have and what, yeah. what things you want to work on. Right. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, this has been such a beautiful conversation, Michelle. I've learned so much and I, I, I know our audience will learn as well. Towards the end, I'd like to ask two questions, if I may. Sure. And... Let's say, Michelle, you could go back in time, 10 years. Was the, you can only give yourself, so you, you're going to meet yourself 10 years ago and you can only give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be? Stop worrying about what other people think and go for it. 
Amazing. I love that. Now let's go 10 years in the future. You're going to be a, an amazing leader and manager. What do you want to learn from your future self in 10 years that you can bring now and apply today in your life? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. I don't know. That's a very, I, I, you stumped me. I don't know. What do people say? I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I guess like keep taking risks because I think that, you know, uh, we're, our society grooms us that like, you know, to play it safe, maybe mm -hmm. take more risks, maybe take the risks, like eat the chocolate cake. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, mean, I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer, right? It's, it's one of those things yeah. I'm like. I'm thinking even now myself is the, you know, I'm starting to ask these questions more of myself. And if I looked at, you know, tests from now, if I met myself, I would say, you know what? I want to bring whatever one thing that I'm excelling at then bring it now and start working on it right away. It could be the morning routine I'm doing. It could be the way I speak to people, the way I listen, any of those small things that I can start working on improving now, because I think based on our conversation right now and looking back at our lives, it didn't start yesterday that you looked at mental health. It started so much farther back. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you, that's when you planted the seeds and now you're, you're reaping, you know, the, the, the beautiful fruits that grew after decades and decades of hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say one thing to your listeners. Absolutely. I think, I think our society grooms us that all the answers we're looking for for our lives are out there. When really we have so many of those answers within us, but we just need to, to slow down and just start to get quiet and listen for those answers because we hold those. So don't fall prey to the fact that what you seek is external of you. It is within you. Such an important lesson. And I, I love that you mentioned that. It, and it's a perfect way to conclude this. And I want to thank you, Michelle for your amazing stories, your amazing wisdom. And I've learned a lot, as I said, and my audience will learn as well, our audience. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. To find out more amazing content and episodes, please visit UnleashThyself.com or you can find us on social media.